and welcome to the Climbing Consulting Podcast with me, your host, Nick Sinnett. I created Climbing Consulting to give those who want to accelerate their careers in consulting access to the best mentors in the field through interviews with leading figures in the industry. In each episode, I interview someone who's made it to the top to find out their tips, advice, and strategies so that you can achieve the same success. Today's episode is a little different. Instead of interviewing a leader from the consulting industry, I'm speaking with a leader from the recruitment industry to find out how you can use recruiters effectively and what you need to know when you're looking to make a move. Today's guest is Minesh Jobanputra, co-founder of Delta Group. Delta Group is a specialist program, project and change recruitment firm who provide both independent and permanent consultants to a range of companies, including major blue chips as well as consulting houses. I first met Minesh back in 2016 when I was looking for an independent role and his approach and that of Deltra really stuck with me. His honest and transparent style coupled with his knowledge of the industry was really refreshing and this is what led me to invite him onto the podcast. I thought he'd be a great guest and he definitely didn't disappoint. We cover some really interesting topics in this episode, including how Minesh founded Delta Group, how you can tell a good recruiter from a bad one, and how you can avoid the biggest interview mistake that Minesh and his team hear from their clients when getting feedback on candidates. If you're thinking about going out on your own as an independent or simply considering moving firms, then this episode is a must listen. I learned a lot from this conversation and I hope you do too. So please enjoy my conversation with Minesh Jobanputra. Hi, Minish. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So it's great to be back here. I think it was, it was 2016 last time I was here, wasn't it? So just for context, really, for my listeners, we met, as I said, back in 2016. I was looking for an independent role. And I always remember yourself and Delta because I came in to meet one of your colleagues, talk about it. And I remember that you you took the time out to come and introduce yourself as the director, as the founder of the business. And we'll discuss that during today. And And that left a really positive impression with me I, I just remember thinking I've met oh gosh at that time must have been five or ten different recruiters for a specific role and that really stood out as you being someone who would take the time and, and what that said about your firm and I understand that's something you do with everyone not quite everyone uh, we try to with as many people as possible so myself and Julian my other co-founder we try to go and meet as many candidates as possible but naturally as, as time's gone on that that hasn't always been there but we are trying our best to get in front of as many people as possible Largely because our consultants take so much time to go and register every candidate. We meet every candidate we work with. We only submit candidates to clients that we've physically met in person or via Skype. So it's only right that where possible, we go in, meet them as well, just to make sure that candidate is suitable for other areas of the business. Maybe there are things that we're working on behind the scenes that person could be of use to as well. And hopefully we can make some introductions. As I say, I don't think that seems common in the industry. It feels like something you decided as, as part of, I guess, how you set up Deltra. Was there a specific conversation around the sort of those values or how you're going to approach things like that when, when you and Julian set up? Or was that something more organic? Never a conversation about it. But I think we'd always, almost an unwritten rule that we would always just still try and be recruiters. You know, unfortunately, we don't get to do that too much. So probably maybe 20% of our time is client facing, working with candidates. The rest of it is working on the business. But we are trying where possible to make sure that we're still out there talking to clients on a daily basis, talking to our senior network, talking to candidates about what they're going through, what they're looking for, meeting with candidates as regularly as we can do, largely because we don't, we enjoy it. You know, that, that's, that's what we got into recruitment for. So to almost move away from that entirely just wouldn't make sense to us, wouldn't be logical. Yeah. So where possible, when we get a chance to do that, it's a lot of fun. It's enjoyable. We like meeting people. 
And really, that's what we're encouraging our team here to do. And they're all doing a fantastic job of it. So it's only right where possible that we get out there and do that as often as possible as well. And the only, the only sort of regret is that we don't get to do it enough. I'd, I'd love to do more of it, given, yeah. given the opportunity. So we obviously know each other. For some of my listeners who maybe don't know you as well, could you just give a, an overview of your background and, and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, of course. Um, so I joined the recruitment industry back in 2002, straight after university. Um, joined a, a relatively big uh, organization in the UK. Um, I was recruiting accountancy and finance professionals. Did that for about five years, then moved into recruiting program and project professionals. And it was there that Julian and I joined the same team, although we'd known of each other since we both started at that firm. So we both joined pretty much around the same time, moved to projects and programs team on the same day, worked there together for about three and a half years. And that business was then being bought out by a larger organization and we noticed there were significant changes afoot largely around the way candidates were treated clients um, the need to monetize everything but also the fact that everything was being scrutinized monitored recorded tracked it almost took it almost became a transactional model and the team that we operated on bucked that trend massively our our model was not about transaction operating in a transactional manner it was about working with candidates and clients and trying to build good relationships with them and those relationships take time because it can't happen on the first meeting so when we saw that change coming we probably i think it was we were sat there one day and i we had gone out to the, the wider market we'd actually interviewed a few other recruitment companies we'd met with loads of recruitment owners and some of them who had really impressive stories. And was this as you, when you say we, you'd gone out as a team, you were trying to sell yourselves as no, a team? No, so actually, or? Julian and I were going out independently, uh, as were the rest of the team, in fact. Um, we were going out independently, but ironically enough, because we were using the same headhunter, we were going to the same companies just one day after the other. So we'd come back to the office and, you know, how was your interview yesterday? Oh, Mike, this one said this, this one said that. And it was a bit more of a, it was so open and honest. We were all just sat there talking about, I was offered this, I was offered that, this person's spoken about how they built this company to whatever size and we'd gone out and met with the same people largely and there were some really like I said impressive characters that were out there built some big businesses that we hear about today but the one thing that we weren't getting was inspiration we weren't meeting people that we thought I want to work with and for you that specific individual and quite often the big sort of common denominator was none not many of them were client facing anymore so they all built these businesses sat in their offices but weren't really interacting with customers on a daily basis and our entire model was all about go out and be client-facing, customer-facing. So um, it's a point of contention because we'll never admit who sort of suggested it. Although who, who I'm, do you I'm, think? I'm convinced it was me. I, I'm convinced. <laughs> I came back to the office one day and said, um, why don't we start a company together and just do our own thing? And I think it took about five minutes for us sat on desk to say, yeah, sure, let's do it. And that was it. So from then, we decided we would go and start a company. The rest of it, the realization then sunk in around, well, how do we actually go and do that? And there was one person who we'd met with in the industry where both of us had interviewed and we both had a really, really good rapport. Got on really well with him, uh, liked his style, his approach. And we'd heard that as well as hiring individuals, he had often um, been quite a big advocate of backing individuals as well. So um, we'd approached him. After we were offered an opportunity to go and join the team, we politely declined the opportunity to join working for the company itself. But we re-approached him to say, look, we've, we we like you, the individual. We actually feel that we could do something here together. We need the financial backing to start Deltra. We've got Julian and myself who are happy to go away and start the company and do it all. But we just need the support 
financial support and also the clout at the time to say, I back these guys and therefore I can extend things like invoice finance as a facility or office space and whatever else. And this was in 2010. And we'd resigned our positions in September. So that was... You're coming out of the recession, but people were still talking about the recession at that time. Oh, it's st- still really in the recession. Not not as deep in the recession, yeah. but we were still very much in the recession. The only thing was, <laughs> sounds a bit silly now, but we didn't really re- we didn't think of it like that at the time because change and projects and programs and transformation so sort of insulated in many ways from it. We weren't really impacted, but the rest of the recruitment industry, the rest of the economy, was still very much hurting from the impact of Lehman's going yeah. down. So we hadn't given it much thought. We didn't really ever look around and think, we're in a recession, should we be starting a company? But I remember reading an article in the Harvard Business Review a couple of years before that spoke about the most successful companies were the ones that pumped money into their own, into their organizations during a recession. And the ones that were hurting the most were the ones who cut staff. So our organization where we worked in 2008, when Lehman's went down, they cut 8% of the workforce. And that was a small cut compared to the rest of the marketplace. But even then we realized they didn't back it. There yeah. wasn't enough investment to say, we'll ride this out, even though they had millions to fall back on. They didn't back it. So from our point of view, we thought, well, it's two of us. We can go. We know what we can. We know what we need to do in recruitment. We know how to recruit. We know there's enough customers out there that we can approach, enough former clients, former candidates, once our restricted covenant period was over, who would happily work with us again. So we had enough self-confidence to start our own businesses. But the main thing was we needed the financial support and, and a bit of bit of support to say look here you go here's a bit of an infrastructure and we were still quite new to all of it so we approached um we approached this individual and and went to him and said look this is our thought this is our idea what do you think and i think that we met at the rac club in london for breakfast and within two hours the agreement was there in principle to say fine let's go ahead and do it he put us in touch with his solicitor his accountant and his bank manager we then had conversations and meetings about can we do it can we get an invoice finance facility can we trade on our own ledger Who's going to do our accounts? Where are we going to sit on a daily basis? All of those sorts of little things that you never really think about. And it took us about two and a half weeks to get the crux of it done. How did that breakfast go? What were the, I guess specifically, what were the challenges that this person who would ultimately become, I guess, your investor, what were his challenges to make sure that, okay, maybe I'd have hired Minesh and Julian as as recruiters, but... How do I know they're going to be okay out on their own? Good question. I guess we'd, we'd need to ask him that, but... I actually don't think there were many. And this was the most unique part to it. We didn't get together with a formal business plan. We didn't write down three-year projections. We just sat down around a table and said, look, three of us, get on. We like what we're hearing. We're all honest about what we want to achieve. Let's just go away and do this. And we always knew that that meant Julian and I would be the ones on the phone meeting candidates, doing the recruitment part of this job, but would be able to call upon advice and support on a effectively in a board meeting session once a month but the rest of it was really down to us and we wanted to own run create a business i I always use the term back of a fag packet but effectively it was how do we create the company we know the logistics we know how to iron that out how do we run a company we'll figure out as we go along what do we want to do and that was really the key thing Mm. we knew we wanted to be change project program recruiters that's it and that, that that's what Delta is today. You know, we've um, we recently looked at our branding and how we can actually position ourselves in the marketplace. And a lot of that is really focusing on our relationships. We knew that we didn't want to work in a transactional environment. So as soon as we took that model and that approach out to the marketplace to say we want to start our own company, we want to be relationship focused. We want to focus on how we can really understand our clients, understand our candidates, really get to know what they're all going through, what they're trying to achieve and then hopefully provide a service that's of value to all parties involved. The rest of it was quite straightforward. 
So we were, give, we were given the support to say, well, look, here's office space that if you need it for a year, this is what it's going to sort of cost effectively on a monthly basis. Here's the infrastructure. We were kindly given access to his accountant at the time then, who now is a permanent employee at Deltra, who's our financial controller. And on day one, that was it. We started. So <laughs> but prior to that, we, uh, we had a month's gardening leave. And in that month, Julian and I went to Cornwall. I remember we were sat at his dad's house with a laptop and there we just incorporated the name. Yeah. So Julian and his, his wife, who's, um, who's worked in PR, she kindly helped us out with thinking of names and how we came up with the name Deltra. How did you? And also, what was? do you remember any of the ones that you binned? Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember too many that we binned. Um, there was another suggestion that we had, which actually we're proud of because it exists now, which is Latimer Executive. Yeah. That, was always, that was always the front runner. But then uh, Julian's wife, Natalie, ran a session with some of her contacts and she sat us down and sort of said, well, what, what is your business going to actually do? And what do your candidates do? So came up with a series of words, effectively deliver projects, uh, run projects, project delivery, whatever it might be. But the common denominator was deliver transformation. So she spliced those two words, Dell and then Tra. And that's where it came from, delivering transformation. And it literally came from a brainstorm session that she kindly put together. She put a lot, of, a lot of effort into it. And then we had four other, we had four names, I think, in total. And I remember we were both on the phone to each other one day, looking at our emails, and then we said, that one, Deltra. It says it says what it needs to say, and it, it described what our candidates do. So we created the name, incorporated it whilst we were in Cornwall, built the content for the website, got in touch with the website developer and provider who was going to work on it behind the scenes, and then agreed that in October 2010, we'd start working again having had four weeks out. And that was it. That On day one, that was the creation of the company. And we walked into our backer's office and that was another recruitment firm. They were sort of full flight, 25 people in their office. And there's two strangers walking in saying, we sit on this desk. And we were separated by a, a screen divider. So every couple of hours, we'd look over, make sure the other one's still there and say, how's our company going today? <laughs> and that was it, really. Why? Maybe, maybe he's told you, maybe you've got your own thoughts. Why did this... This backer wants to back you or, or any other recruitment firm at the time. I think that's a lot of his nature. I, I also think he he's just an honest, an honest guy. So knows that we had a real desire to want to build something. I think he wanted to be part of it and genuinely saw an opportunity to be part of it, which was fantastic. Uh, we wouldn't have achieved what we have achieved had we not had that support at the time. So we're eternally grateful for that. And. I think he also liked what he saw. I'd hope he liked what he saw when he met us for those interviews. And so there are probably some people out there who would say, look, if you don't want to, if you don't want to come work here for us, we're not interested and never want to talk to you again. And others in the marketplace who would probably say, well, actually, look, I can look at the bigger picture and maybe there's something else to be done and maybe we can work together outside of that. And we were fortunate that he took the approach to say, happy to work with you guys. And for us, that meant a lot. And it enabled us to achieve what we have done. And I think that's an important point that you took the the risk and you you did ask him. You know, a lot of people I think don't always ask that next question that can lead to to what obviously it's led to for you. Yeah, we were naive enough to. I mean, we didn't think about going to the banks, but then the banks weren't really lending, yeah. as you can imagine at the time. So they definitely wouldn't. Have, well, they they weren't going to lend to two individuals who were working for a big corporate firm who would go to them and say, "Well, look, we're probably going to need access to maybe a couple of hundred thousand. Can you lend it to us, please?" I think, you know, they would have laughed us out the door. So we were sat there thinking, we want to do it. 
How do we do it? Do we just do permanent recruitment? So lower overheads, no invoice finance facility, but really we're contract pillars. That's been our thing from day one. So we always wanted to recruit contractors. So the main thing was how do we get invoice finance? How do we actually access that? How do we get an accountant who's going to want to work with us? How do we get a big bank on our side to say, I'll lend you the money. I'll give you the bank account. And within two weeks, we were sat talking to a business manager from HSBC in the West End who said, sure, if he's backing you, then I'll, I'll back you. And that was it. It was all of these things came together very, very quickly. And we were able to call upon personal contacts, personal relationships, where we needed some advice around employment contracts, shareholder agreements. We were able to put it all together very, very quickly with the help of some you know, very, very kind individuals who worked fast and hard to get us up and running quickly. You know, the point you've highlighted sort of in your, you know, how, how Deltry came to being was the speed. You went from resigning to, to starting the firm extremely quickly. Were there any fears or concerns you had during this, this whirlwind period? And, and how did, you know, either you or Julian or you together sort of overcome those to, to get started and crack on? Nothing that was ever spoken about. Yeah. So I doubt Julian ever had any concerns or fears because that's not his character. Um <laughs> And for myself, no, I think we both know that we can recruit. Yeah, so we're confident in your abilities and we knew that yourself. We knew that if we picked up the phone and spoke to the right people, they would want to work with us. And we didn't necessarily need to have a multi-million pound business behind us for them to want to do it. So that gave us the confidence that we had the right relationships where we could leverage off of them. So that, that, that was the main bit of confidence that we needed. Let me ask, ask a slightly different question then is, you, you went into this, you knew recruitment, you, you didn't really know running your own firm, you'd never done that. What either beliefs or, or sort of expectations did you have about running your own firm that became Deltra sort of in before you started it that now you've been running it for, I think you said seven, seven years coming on eight, mm. just completely different? What, what is it that you expected that now you're doing it you're like, that is completely different, good or bad? So I think on day one, I'd always had my head in the sort of looking at the accounts, looking at the figures and constantly, almost on a daily basis, looking at it. And I just presumed at the time, that's what you have to do if you run your own company, as well as the recruitment, as well as formatting CVs and creating invoices and all the other things that go with it. And it took me a little while, actually, to step away from that, where actually we were having a conversation with our backer at the time. And his take was, just forget that for now. Just go and do what you do and do what you're good at. So go and recruit and actually build the business. And the rest of it will take care of itself. As long as you do it on sound principles, so the right financials and the right agreements in place with the right clients, everything else will take care of itself. And it was really good advice, actually, because I was able to sort of stop looking at the monthly management reports and really looking at it thinking nothing's changed from day to day because it's all there in black and white. Stepping away from that and saying, well, actually, the most important thing that we can now do is get our contractor base up and up and running. And that that's where both Julie and I spent a lot of time focusing on how do we get the right contractors out? How do we break into the right clients, first and foremost? And then it was really about how do we actually start building a business? How do we go and hire people who want to come work in recruitment, who want to come and join a startup where it's two people? How do you go and attract someone to go and join you on day one? You know? And how, how did you do that? Because it sounds like you and Julian, you had a good relationship. You, you had very similar aspirations to what you wanted for the business. Mm. How did you then build and maybe you didn't, a more formal, like you say, plan, how do we attract people? What do we want to become as a business? How, how did those sort of initial conversations shape where you've come today? So I guess no formal plan, and you'll probably see a recurring theme through this conversation, <laughs> never a formal plan effectively, but we just knew that when we'd got to a certain point, I think it was sort of six months in, we realized that there was 
traction in the marketplace. People were happy to talk to us. We'd got our first client on after two days, which is pretty ideal. How? How did you? How did that first client so come about? An, an old contact of mine, um, a candidate, in fact, was working over at Lloyd's Banking. And day two, she saw my LinkedIn update. That I'd left my old firm, moved elsewhere, never transacted with her at Lloyd's because we weren't able to um, in my previous business. And she called me and said... I need to recruit a project manager. Really difficult role. Had no joy in finding it. It's a really unique skill set. What have you got? Day two, that's it. We're up and running. Build a database and find this perfect candidate. But the good thing was it, it then meant both both Julian and I were working on this together. So we were both thinking about candidates, registering candidates. And thankfully, he was able to draw upon his his knowledge and experience to say, I placed a candidate five years ago who'd worked on a similar project in accountancy. And she subsequently moved into project management. We met her, had lunch with her, realized she was the right person for the role, introduced her to our client within a week, first offer. And I think I think it was yeah, literally within two to three weeks, we'd made our first ever placement as a business with Lloyd's Banking Group, who would never and should never have worked with a startup that was only a month old. And our client got her wrist slapped for doing it, but she still did it. And then we had our second contractor working for them a month later. So I can just imagine the feeling you must have had day two, look at what we've got, land that. I mean, having a client like that as your first one must be a big coup for any recruitment well, firm. I think, I think we knew that we weren't going to ever, unfortunately, build a big business at, you know, a book of business at Lloyd's. Yeah. Because, you know, our client had her wrist slapped, unfortunately, for doing it. But it was fantastic that she was prepared to put a neck on the line for us. And the fact that she had a relationship with us to say, these guys will find me somebody. So whether I get told off or not, internally by procurement or HR, whoever it may be, doesn't really matter. Let me just go and crack on and do it. And I'm, we're lucky that, well, I'm, I'm grateful that we were able to repay her confidence as well by finding her someone who ended up staying with them for nearly three years as a contractor and did an amazing job there for them. And thankfully, the two of them are still friends as of today. And it's wonderful that you hear that kind of, you know, those relationships go outside of, you know, a professional sense. But we were able to connect two individuals. She delivered a fantastic project for them, got it delivered on time, on budget, did a brilliant job there. And the client was happy. So I do want to come on to, to almost how you put those people together. And, and, and we will later because I think there's so much to explore around how you, how you could get that sense by meeting them separately and obviously it worked out putting them together. It sounds like your sort of early days, everything went quite well. You know, you found your backer, you got this first contract that turned into a second and so on. Are there any, have there been any challenges as you've developed Ultra? And what were they and how did you overcome those? Yeah, definitely. I think um, for me personally, my second year in the business, um, found it really difficult to get new clients on board. It was it was proving to be really, really tough. And it was almost the worst, probably my worst ever year in recruitment, ironically enough. Um, but that was really tough because knocking on doors and typically financial services clients who would just say, nope, you know, we've got a PSL, we've got suppliers, not interested. And then on the other hand, Julian was doing fantastically well. It broken into some really major companies and was absolutely storming ahead, which was brilliant for the business and absolutely what we needed. So it was great that we had that. But it also meant that I, I knew that I needed to do a heck of a lot more as well. And we'd had um, some employees join the business who, again, going out, knocking on doors, making progress with some really good clients and some big clients. So the challenge on a personal level for me was to demonstrate that I could bill and I could still go and win business and place contractors. But that year too, I remember talking to some friends in the industry saying, you know, it's quite difficult. This is tough. Um, but then thankfully, towards the end of that second year, and start year three, it then came back again and some bigger clients came back on board and we were able to then win bigger projects, which meant 
more contractors going out. And the rest of the team were also subsequently doing that. And we were fortunate that year on year, we were constantly growing. So whilst we still face those challenges, there were always other parts of the business that were performing well. So if one person was having a bit of a difficult period or a lean couple of months, someone else in the business was doing really well. And we've always operated as one big team. So transparency around how many contractors we have, how much we're billing per day, whatever it might be, that's all open and honest in the marketplace. So well, certainly in the office. So it was quite handy that everyone was able to talk to each other about, well, look, I've tried this. Why don't you try that? This technique might work. Why don't you go and, you know, go and speak to this person about this bit of regulation in the marketplace or go and talk about this type of project? Maybe that's of interest. Maybe that's relevant right now. And what if you you remember, were any of those pieces of advice, were there any courses, websites, books that people said, you know, Minesh, try this approach or go and read this or do this thing? No, nothing, um, nothing that stands out. Um, I think the main thing was just perseverance. And this is something that we've always spoken to potential hires for the business about. We speak about perseverance and can people stick with it even when you have a bit of a, a rough time or a bit of a lean time are you prepared to still stick at it and say if you know you're a good recruiter if you know you can recruit and you understand your subject matter the rest of it falls into place and it will fall into place but really i mean we talk internally about back to basics all the time don't forget relationships don't forget your candidates don't forget your clients just keep in touch with the right people make sure you've always got something of value to talk to people about make make sure you can differentiate yourself in the marketplace and then we were able to tap into the right things that were going on. So Solvency 2 was still very, very popular in the marketplace. There was a lot around that. So we were able to go after that again. There were always different regulations that were sort of popping up that meant clients needed help. There were some mergers and acquisitions taking place with some of our clients, which meant the need to grow teams was important. So it was just about trying to hone in on what was what was hot in the marketplace at the time and making sure we were just either there or thereabouts in terms of being one step ahead so we could try and get into that quickly. And there's something when you were talking about how you had your sort of lean period, you, you sort of mentioned that people go through these cycles, others of your team have done the same. It might be a, a, a wrong misconception in, in, in recruitment, but my impression, having never worked in the industry, is it's very much meet your targets or, or leave. You know, if, if you don't place people, you're out. It sounds like you've got a more collaborative approach to, to helping junior colleagues. What is that? Yeah, junior and senior colleagues. I think um, we've still got KPIs in place. And I think it's, it's a bit of a misconception that KPIs are a sort of a dirty word. But if you work in a sales environment, any sales are driven by targets and forecasts. So we need to have targets in place. But I think we're also very um, honest about the fact that there are times where people struggle. There are times where things quite, you know, don't quite go to plan. That's not to say that you can, there's an endless supply of time to say if it's not quite working but we're also not the sort of company that would sit here and say right you haven't made a you've made a placement this month you've you got to leave the company i think it's just about being realistic as long as people are putting in the right level of effort and they're working smart and doing the right activities then from our point of view as long as we're doing all of the right things we know it will come good but we've always been quite honest with people as well to say look as long as you follow the plan and follow a way of working we know there's enough clients out there in the industry who will work with us. We know there's enough transformation taking place that there's you know, plenty of contracting opportunities where we yeah. can make a bit of a difference to our clients. So just go after the right things, do the right activities, meet the right candidates, talk to enough people, provide those value-add services. But it, it has to be a collaborative approach. And yes, we have targets in place. And yes, our t you know we, we stand by our targets. But I think we also understand that when people are trying and doing the right activities, if it doesn't always yield the right results instantly, that doesn't necessarily matter yeah. because the results will come. 
And it goes back to the fact that we're a relation, we're a relationship-driven business, not a transactional business. So we can't expect results to happen on the same day. Quite often, I mean, you know, we've got a great, great team of individuals here who quite often want to make phone calls and they want to pick something up on that very same day. And we're saying, look, actually, great that you have that desire, but things will happen. It can be a bit of a lead period. And at, what reaction do you find that gives you from from your team? You know, you you've worked previously, I think you said, in a more transactional environment compared to where you've you've created Delta with a more relationship-focused environment how do you find your team respond to that sort of feedback i think it's probably mixed i think overall people like it people enjoy it because yes there's pressure to meet kpis i think that exists throughout and i think everyone would tell you that there is that there is that desire and need to hit certain kpis but the focus ultimately needs to be on quality so we want people to go out and meet with clients and take people out for lunches or drinks or dinners or host networking events breakfast seminars you know value add services to candidates and clients and at the same time we still need people in the office calling through our existing database as well as new people that we're registering on a daily basis and really honing in on the quality of the candidate that we work with so for us we're not bothered necessarily about having a hundred thousand people on our database if anything i would almost see that as a negative thing to have but actually honing in on the quality of people on our database so how can we actually work with almost a smaller sample of, of candidates but give them a better reach with our clients and then also allowing people here the time to really understand their market, mapping their market properly, understanding who their clients are, what their clients are going through, what challenges they face, and then who can we introduce them to within our network who could either provide a solution or a bit of a bit of a nugget of information that's going to make our client's life a little bit easier. How can we start to introduce that as a staple way of working? And how do you build those relationships? Because I think whether you're a recruiter or you're, you're working in a consulting firm, or even if you're just an independent uh, speaking to your own network, how do you develop those relationships, have those conversations so that it does become a, a collaborative conversation and you get past what can sometimes be the conception from clients that, oh, they're just talking to me because they want to sell me, you know, be it a person, be it a project, be it, be it themselves as an independent? I think it, it's got to come down to the individual. I think I don't think there is a right formula to build a relationship because a relationship is quite a personal thing. So you and I met when you came into the office here. It was one meeting, but we'd spoken a few times on the phone since. Now, we weren't able to find the right opportunity for you. But I remember we had a conversation. I remember once I was outside Kings Cross Station. I called you up because there was something we were tentatively working on. It was a bit of a prospect and I wanted to see if you were around. And at the time, you weren't available. But I remember off the back of that, that we had a bit of a free-flowing conversation. Now, I'd like to think that's one very, very small facet to us building a relationship with you because we were able to think of you off the cuff because of something that came up in a conversation with a client where I was walking back to the office. And there's so many different stages to building relationships, I think. But unfortunately, there isn't really a, a set formula to it. We, we like to think, and we one, one thing we like to promote internally is meeting with people helps, really understanding what they're going through, actually asking better questions getting to the nub of what the what the challenges actually are, but also for a candidate, really, what do they want? What sort of environment do they want to work in? What type of culture will they deliver best in? How can we understand more about the right stakeholder community or the right challenges that they've overcome in the past? All of those things are important to it, but the other part to it is being real. So when candidate, when people come in to interview for a job at Deltra, the first thing Julian and I say to them is, if you've been prepped to come in with an interview persona and a bit of an interview facade, drop it. And because, this is for people applying to yeah, you or yeah, to... Pe people coming to work with us, yeah. be part of our team. We say to them, if you're going to spend 10 hours a day here with us, as a minimum, you probably need to like us. 
and we need to like you. So let's just get to know you, the real individual. And it's the same with our candidates and clients. And we perhaps phrase it differently, but a lot of it really is, do we understand who you are? If I'm going to go out and say to a client, I think you should work with Nick, I need to know a bit more about you. Yeah. Don't need to know your ins and the outs of your personal life, but more around how you would deliver your programs, what sort of style you would take. How would you react to a difficult environment? What are the biggest challenges you've overcome in a professional sense? How have you gone about doing it? I then need to make sure that because our entire model is about quality, if I'm submitting you with maybe two competitors, I've got to make sure that I can say to the client, these three are really good and I rate them and it's my reputation on the line. Yeah. And as you can imagine, when we first started the business, it was our reputation on the line. It was our name on the line. And one thing that Julian and I have often said to clients is if we get it wrong and if we really mess up, we don't expect a second chance. So we can't afford to get it wrong, which means that we need to do the qualitative measure early on. And again, it comes down to relationships. Do we trust our candidates and do we trust our clients? I'd like to think we do. We've got a lot of candidates that we've worked with. I think one uh, one candidate who's just finished up and she's just completed a seventh project for us. And for us, that's a major achievement because we look at that and think, I know that I could introduce her to any one of our network and I could happily say, you will absolutely love her and yeah. you will want to hire her for your particular project of work. And I can say it with certainty. And that obviously, like you say, gives your clients comfort. And that's where you want to be, I think, as a, an independent or someone looking for a job. That actually brings me on to a question really around that point of, okay, if, if someone's worked with you seven times, you know them, you're going to put them into a role all day, every day. If someone, be it an independent or be it someone who's staying in the industry, is looking for a job, how how can they best use recruitment firms? I think, you know, I have conversations with consulting friends and recruitment as a catch-all has a reputation. It does. I think that's fair to say. But I, I'm a big believer that if you don't give someone what they need, they can only help you as much as what you've given them. So if you give a recruiter the wrong things, they're not going to be able to help you. I, what common mistakes do you see candidates make and you can talk about independence or in-house or, or both that sort of stop you from being able to give them the best what what do they need to do to, to help you help them i guess i think the, the one bit of advice i would give is if you've got a relationship with an agency and particular consultants use it and work with them to find opportunities so many times we hear about opportunities that have been released to us and some competitors and sometimes you get some agencies who will send a cv without necessarily qualifying it with a candidate just to make sure they got in there first our approach is the opposite which sometimes works to our detriment but you know we're not bothered by that because we'd rather have the qualitative approach so we'll always make sure we speak to the candidate first we get their right to represent we brief them on the role in as much detail as possible we challenge whether they're right for it or not and then we have a proper conversation with them to say, actually, this is the right role for you. Let's get you submitted to it. Now, in some instances, sometimes candidates will have been approached by another agency very, very quickly. The CV's gone over. They never hear anything back. And we often hear them say, well, actually, I really wish you could represent me on this. So our, our approach would be don't always go for the agency if they're offering you an extra 15 or 20 or 30, 50 quid a day for yeah. that particular job. If you've been briefed on it by two suppliers, go with the agency you think you've got the best relationship with the people who genuinely know the client do they know the line manager do they have any insight into the culture at the organization can they represent you as opposed to just having your cv go over and then it goes into someone else's hands to make a decision and how how can people know who would be best to represent them obviously relationships part of it but yeah. are there any other sort of signals or tells that yeah the main the main marker is knowledge so I, I would like to think 
that when candidates come in to meet with us here and they meet with a consultant in their relevant sector, they get something back from that meeting. So we don't promise to find everybody a job because it's impossible to do so, but we'll talk to everybody about our network, the clients we're working with, companies that we are prospectively working with, companies where we've got relationships but no live opportunities, other companies where we're on the PSL. We're happy to share that information with the right candidates. And that's when we get the candidates sharing information with us. So it's got to be a two-way street yeah. because, again, we've always it always goes back to the mantra that if we're going to put our neck on the line and represent somebody, we don't have the luxury of saying to a client, here's 10 CVs, pick which one you want. That's not our way of working. It really is. Here's three to four what we think are quality individuals and we as individuals and as a business personally rate them. Yeah. It goes back to the fact that we haven't got a multi-million pound corporation behind us that we can fall back on to say, don't worry, a thousand jobs are coming. We don't have that. So we've got to focus on the fact that if we know our clients and if we know the industry and know the marketplace, we share that knowledge with the candidates that are out there, then hopefully they've got some confidence to say these guys know what they're talking about. And I think I think that knowledge point's a, a really good one. I know we were talking actually just before we started mm. recording because a personal frustration of mine and I know others in the industry in my position is is you do call up a recruiter to say, look, I'm, I'm looking for work and you, you talk about your background and very quickly, especially if you're from a consulting background, yeah. the question gets raised, okay, are you a PM or a BA? And as I was saying to you before, my heart always sinks a little when someone asks that because I know that that means that either they... Well, usually it means they they don't really understand the industry, especially if you've come from a consulting background. Yeah. That for me is quite a test, a sort of good acid test. You know, if I've gone for an initial meeting, what are there any other things that Mm. people should look out for or or maybe test with a recruiter to, to, to gauge their competency in the industry when they're having that initial meeting? Do you mean as a management consultant or independent? Is it different? And if so, why? Um, only different in the sense of your experience, oh, so where someone might say, are you a PM or a BA, if you've come from that consultancy background? Let's assume the consultancy background, because if you are a contract PM yeah. for life, that, that's an obvious answer, same with a BA. But I think, again, purely from, from my own situation and yeah. others who I know in the industry are looking to do the same, if you come from a more generalist consulting background, yes. how, how would you take that? Well, actually, let's, let's take yourself as a prime example, if you don't mind. <laughs> no, so, please. When, um, when you came into the office, I remember you'd worked with uh, a, a really well-known consultancy firm. Yeah. Quite very, very good at what they do. And, you, you can say that's all right. So, so Baringa Partners. Partners. Yeah. Great reputation in the marketplace and embedded with a lot of our clients. And I remember when we met, you spoke about the fact that you'd worked on a variety of different projects and programs where sometimes you just go in and do various different things. Yeah. Almost effectively, a, a nondescript portfolio where you've got to take on a, a, the role of a BA one day and the role of a PM the following day. The only way you can really test if someone's understood it is down to the quality of the questions they're asking you. So forget the obvious one of, are you a PM or a BA? Are they asking you about how you went about the requirement gathering exercise? What sort of techniques did you use? Did you put together the project initiation documents when you were running the project as the PM? Were they asking you about how you dealt with business readiness and user acceptance testing? Things like that where... You don't always get neat, neat questions for a set category yeah. of role type. And I remember when we met, we very quickly ascertained the fact that you didn't sit in a neat category. I think it actually came up in conversation where we said, you don't fall into a neat category, which for some clients is a challenge. Yeah. Because when, it, when the profile goes across to them, we're relying on them saying, I get it. And I know what I'm actually looking at. And this person doesn't have a five-year business analysis background. 
they've worked on a BA, they've worked on a program as a BA, and then they've subsequently gone to be a program manager, and then they're back to being a project manager. Yeah. There isn't always that linear trajectory for where your CVs perhaps or what your CV is demonstrating. My advice would be test the agency when you talk to them. What types of roles would we put you forward to? Yeah. If you get the stock response of business analysis, then maybe we don't get it. But if you get the response of, well, actually, I've got an insurance client that's going through that, and your experience from big insurer means you can do this, and I've got a telecoms company over there that are looking at someone who's a bit more hands-on, would you mind considering this sort of opportunity? Hopefully it gives you the confidence to say, they know I can do a range of different things. As we spoke about before we started recording, when we see profiles of people who have worked in consultancies previously, our clients genuinely like those profiles because we know that those individuals don't come in with the attitude of this is my job spec this is my role profile and i only do these tasks and duties and that's not to say independents do that because 99 percent of the candidate workforce we work with are really amiable to doing whatever the client is asking at the time but clients typically like the methodology that consultancies come in with and they know they pay a premium for the methodology so somebody who's been trained and is well versed in that space but working as an independent can quite often cost them a third of the price. So there's often that sort of pull to say, get me a profile like that. I know that they've been put through a rigorous testing process. I know they've been onboarded by people who, in the industry who know what they're talking about. We know the selection process is so tough to get in that if they've made it and lasted two to three to four years, then they could probably come in and add some significant value to this project of work. But they just don't want to necessarily always pay the big fees that go with it, which is why we find that there's always a bit of a demand and why we register and where we work with so many ex-consultants. And if that sort of, let's let's keep with that profile, so... Mm. I guess my my profile, yep. if you like. What can somebody say? They're coming in to have that registration conversation with you. You know, you pick up the phone. Yeah, come in. Let's meet with one of our recruiters. What should they be thinking about in advance to be able to give you the information you need? So I'm thinking for, and these are just to sort of food for thought. Obviously, you know, the type of work you want to do is one. Yeah. But then also, how how do you ascertain fit? You know, should people come to you having thought about this type of firm or client they want to work in, the type of culture? Or is that sort of something that you expect to tease out as part of your conversation? A bit of both. A bit of both. I think the best, um, the best examples that we could have are when we get candidates who come in here and you look at the clock and it's two hours. You know, two hours have flown by and you think, where has the time gone? Because in that time, you've just had a free-flowing conversation. So on the one hand, we absolutely deep dive into the skills of you know what is a candidate able what they're capable of doing what have they worked on previously where we get the most value when candidates come into the office here is when they're happy to share information doesn't have to be commercially sensitive but talking about how they deliver what their delivery style is how they overcame certain challenges and i think we're we're big believers in the fact that people recruit personalities not words on a cv i think the cv helps the cv is a supporting document but it's not the shop window necessarily our ability to sell a candidate to a client or explain what a candidate can do with a client is probably the most vital thing and it's about our ability to really understand what they are capable of what they want to do the type of environment they want to work in and the culture fit and the culture fit is so vital which is why when we're trying to qualify positions with our clients one of our big questions is culture fit what what makes the right fit for your organization because we could probably find 100 pmcvs within an hour but that's not really the way we'd like to work i'd rather find three that i know i could introduce to hypothetically facebook what would be the right facebook fit versus what's the right fit 
fit for Baringa. Yeah. You know, I'm sure there's different profile types, but they both might want to recruit a, a HR project manager, but you'd have a very different person that would go into both organizations. And that's really our responsibility to find that out. And I think as long as candidates come into meetings here and they're open and willing to talk about their experience, what they've delivered, what they found difficult, perhaps projects where they failed, as well as projects that were successful, that helps us because then we can really understand who we can introduce them to. Yeah. And, and that openness, I think, is a really interesting point because uh, yeah. I know when I was was younger and I'm, I know others the same, I think people sometimes feel they have to have a, you know, like you said, your sort of interview persona. I really like that phrase. Yeah. And that can obviously, that works for an hour, maybe two, but when you're in role can fail, you know, fail abysmally. And, and likewise, if you don't challenge and ask about the cultural fit, the type of role, et cetera, has the same, has the same challenges as well. And I'm sure you, you give that to your clients, or sorry, your candidates to say that this is what the clients like. Your approach is obviously one of deep relationships, getting to know candidates, getting to know clients, which I, I think works really well, obviously has worked really well for you. For people who, who are looking for roles, should they? what should their approach be when approaching recruiters? And I'm thinking here in terms of number of recruiters. Is it better for someone like me or someone who's looking to move consultancies to work very closely with a small pool or should they be looking to spread their net as far as possible? I think it depends on how specialist they are. Okay. So if you were looking for a particular industry type, embed yourself with the recruiters that have a good network in that space. So maybe the generalist ones aren't always the right ones to go to, but then sometimes some niche ones might not necessarily focus on a particular market. It's probably frustrating for candidates because they see so many vacancies advertised with so many different suppliers, and that's because there's no barriers to entry into recruitment. So thousands and thousands of companies pop up every year. And then you get the big the big PSL recruits. Yeah, absolutely. Recruitment. So my advice would be, personally, I'm always in favor of saying work with a small number of niche providers. So if we look at, I mean, let's focus on change and transformation because that's, you know, that, that's the space that we're in. I would always say to candidates, you don't need to go out to too many people. And if you look at, as long as you've got the right coverage and the right sector coverage, so here we separate everything by the sectors that we look at as a business, as long as we cover that, and if a candidate is really specific about only wanting to work in one particular market, if that supply, if that agency does it, then hone in on them and try to build proper relationships with them so they can go out and be proactive on your behalf. And that's really our approach. How can we go out and take our service, take our candidates to our clients? We don't always wait for vacancies to come through to us because that's, that's not the right way to go about it. As soon as we've met good candidates who we've built what we think are strong relationships and once we've got an understanding of what they're capable of doing, I'd much rather have the approach where we can actually take that person to three or four individual clients to say, maybe you want to go and have a coffee with this individual. Might not be a vacancy, but just go and have a conversation. I think you'll get on. There's probably some useful tips that are going to come from that chat and then stay in touch with each other. And just and see we, where it goes. Yeah, and we do that on a regular basis and, and that's quite often happening. Sometimes it leads to vacancies being created for candidates. Other times it leads to two people being in touch for a sustained period of time. And hopefully after that, they can maybe make further introductions for each other. You're obviously having regular contact and conversations with your clients, like you say, about what they're looking for. Mm. One thing that's always interested me and I, I think will really help my listeners is, are there any skills or attributes or capabilities that maybe your your clients look for but don't make it onto the job description you know those sort of informal but consistently informal bits of advice sorry feedback or requirements that your clients look for um there's not often qualifications that, that crop up and the things that do come up are probably things that you couldn't put on paper it'd be really hard to articulate so again it culture fit 
the fit for the team, the right type of person for this organization, it's probably something that's impossible, I think, to really put down in words on paper, which is why the briefing calls that we make and the meetings that we have with our clients where we really understand it is so crucial to us. The only thing I, the only thing I can really think about is when clients come back to us and say, look, we're moving to maybe a more agile way of working. And it's something that isn't necessarily a formal practice within the organization, but they're perhaps trying different project methodologies where they want to have a bit of a blended approach. But again, it's not something that's really formal, documented, yeah. that you can say, I need three of these. So again, a lot of that is about us teasing information out from clients to understand really what the challenges are. If someone's got a Prince background versus an Agile background, is it going to be a disadvantage? Is it going to be a plus point? I don't really think, I mean, I very rarely come across clients who actually say, look, they only have to have a Prince 2 methodology, um, Prince 2 qualification or an Agile qualification. Yeah. It doesn't that, often come on, up. On that point, because it is something that I look at, you know, when I, when I see job descriptions, people sort of tack on, let's say Prince 2. Yeah. And I've worked in, so I am Prince 2 qualified, so I'm a practitioner. I've worked in projects for majority of my work life. I'm probably yet to see a project that fully follows Prince 2 to the letter. Absolutely. And almost, I'd go as far to say... I've, I've rarely seen it used formally at all. But you look at these JDs and everyone asks for it. Is, it, is that just because they think they should? Or, or how do you have those conversations? If you had a, a candidate that, say, didn't have Prince2, but had project, with project background, how would you have that conversation with a, a client? So I think for interim appointments and contracting appointments, our clients are really open. Our, that's where we're really fortunate. We work yeah. with some fantastic clients who are happy to take our advice and steer. And if someone hasn't got a, a set qualification they're able to back it up by maybe having 15 years of project delivery experience and if if they've got that then do they need prince too and one would argue they do and the other would say absolutely not i agree with your point that not uh prince is hardly ever seen to be used in full force yeah i think the reason companies ask for it and this is just my personal opinion is they'd like to know that an individual's gone through perhaps certain training and they understand that, that there are processes that you would typically follow so you don't get somebody just walking in one day saying i can be a project manager i don't need any real qualification or knowledge of how it works but i think i can run a project by doing x y and z so it might be that it just gives people the comfort blanket to say we've at least done our due diligence we know they are qualified in prince waterfall whatever it might be that minimum threshold absolutely they've at least bothered to go through the qualifications they've at least sat the exams they've gone through what it takes to say i've got an accreditation in this in this arena it's perhaps a bit more applicable for permanent positions yeah because it's maybe more of a formal process that underpins it for contracting roles quite often the end client pretty much makes the call based on what they feel is the right gut feel so it's for more that of a relationship project. type i think type i think it can be personally yeah and that's obviously something that could be is a minimum bar for some people what for you separates the the good candidates from the or sorry the great candidates from the good candidates you know you talked about this lady who's done seven projects for you you know she's probably on your system with a big star next to her you know hire, hire her please what is it what what is it that someone like her has you know she's i'm assuming one of your great candidates that separates her from your sort of everyday candidate it's the soft skills i think the um the ability to well actually emotional intelligence is probably the best way to describe it so we like to look at all of our candidates and we really try to judge what their eq is and there isn't a form, we don't use a sort of formal accreditation, so I'm not saying we sort of sit here and assess people, but we all look at individuals and we always think about, could they get on with that person that we met last week? That particular client who's got quite a unique style or might have a, a certain demand, 
could this candidate go and get on with them? Yeah. Could she could she really have a conversation with them offline where that client is put at ease that if I bring this person into my business, they're going to make me look good, they're going to help our project deliver on time, and they can add significant value. And that isn't something that you can find on, pe- on paper, yeah. and it won't be something you'll find on a CV. So all of that then comes down to our pre-screening and our qualification of candidates. When we're meeting people, we look at, are they down to earth? You know, what, what level of openness and honesty do we get from their communication style with us? What's, what do we think their hand-in-glove fit is? What types of organisations do we think they'd be best suited to? What types of line managers yeah. would we identify as you're the sort of person that would fit in well with person X over there? And if you can get on with that person, then you can probably get on with 99% of our client base because they're really demanding. But they're demanding because they've got really high standards and therefore you're good enough to go and work across the board. But there isn't a, um, a measurable thing that we would use that could yeah. say that is a great candidate and quite often a lot of what we do is the due diligence piece so we'll meet with candidates we'll interview them we'll get to know them but really all of that is that that plays second fiddle to the fact that we get references on our candidates so your question earlier about what should candidates do when they're working with agencies in our case we ask for references not because we want to go out and use that information for business development but we want to use that information to really understand is that candidate good did that candidate genuinely deliver what they told us they delivered and what was what was the the big thing about that individual that made you hire them in the first place how did they complete that particular program of work what were the challenges you saw them overcome during that time when they were with you we had a prime example yesterday one of our one of our consultants talking to a CIO of a big insurance firm and he spent 20 minutes talking to the client about this candidate really got to know everything there was to know about this candidate and this is someone that we want to proactively take out to the marketplace but the best thing was off the back of that call he finished that call absolutely energized and pumped to say this is a brilliant candidate and my judgment was correct I thought they were brilliant I just had it backed up by someone who's well known in the industry I've now got the confidence to go to all of my clients and say you really should meet this individual but we have to do that due diligence so as much as we might meet people and think they're brilliant unless we get it backed up by a credible source in the marketplace it can't count for enough so we've got to get we've got to get people coming back to us to say i rate this individual i would hire them i would work with them i would recommend them for this type of organization and the market we work in is quite small yeah Uh, definitely i'm sure you've probably come up against people time and time again who you've maybe met three or four years ago it's an incestuous marketplace and word spreads. And yeah. if you've delivered a project well, you're well known for it. And we all know about the projects that are in the marketplace that haven't delivered or have failed and why they failed. And, you know, that sticks. So people understand if you're good and word gets around. So from our point of view, we want to make sure we can back it up. Yeah, no, it's a re- I think it's a really good point. And, you know, to your point around from a candidate side, knowing which recruiters to deal with, I think the ones that I've stayed in touch with and have you know most professional respect for is the ones where I can do that also from a candidate side so I know uh, one particular company I was getting a a couple of calls about roles there and I I was speaking to the recruiter who I got on with well I was like I've heard some interesting things about this company you know people say actually it's not the best place to work and the recruiter was very honest he's like well actually Nick it's not you know you will be expected to do this it's long hours no thank yous but if that's the sort of role you want to do, it's a long role. And that from a candidate side is equally useful as it is for a recruitment firm for the for the candidate himself. It, it's interesting as well, uh, one of my other guests, uh, Matt Chung from Clarisys, that was actually his exact response as well. What the EQ is what separates the best from the rest. You know, I think, as he said, you can, you can be the smartest person in the room, but if you don't have EQ, you won't succeed. And I, I know I've seen a lot of smart people in the industry who exactly fit, fit that. So it's a really, really interesting thing. And if someone is listening to this thinking, actually, I need to work on my EQ, 
are there any books or things that you've given to people to help them God, or advice? I wish they were. <laughs> <laughs> We'd market it. No, sadly not. There isn't anything in particular that, that stands out. I mean, I, I take part in a forum on, on a monthly basis and I, I ran, I actually ran an EQ questionnaire on myself. Um, Sorry, quest, so you, you had a questionnaire in front of you that you. Yeah, there was, a, there was an expert who specializes in um, EQ training and uh, she puts, uh, she put a series of questions to us and we, we ran through them and then ran through the results of it afterwards. And actually that for me was quite enlightening. And there's a few people here who have actually gone through the same exercise. And I think even just knowing where you sit on an EQ scale, what your key strengths are, what sort of areas you would fall into. And again, you can probably do different personality tests. You can do Myers-Briggs. Yeah. Just having an understanding of actually who you are as a character and how you work, how you learn, how you deliver communication, how you how you would adapt to social environments. Just knowing it is probably the step in the right direction. And if you can do that and then look at self-development after that, then great. Some people might look at it and think it's all hocus pocus. Others look at it and think, not going to bother reading about that. Some look at it and think, brilliant. You know, that constant yearn for self-development exists. So that's the only real advice I could give. I don't know if you have the name, but did this training questionnaire have a, is that like a Myers-Briggs? I know you already no, have a name. I think, or I think it was something that was actually developed by this um, by this expert herself. What was what was her name? Uh, her name escapes me. Unfortunately. Actually, I'll tell you what, if you, uh, after, the sh- after we've recorded this yeah. if it does come up just send it over i'll yeah. put it in the show notes and then people can look her up but yeah I, her name escapes me at the moment but i remember reading through it and then looking at the narrative that sat under each column and thinking all of it was absolutely accurate and i've always been a bit skeptical about some of these you know answer 100 questions in five minutes and see what you can come up with but it, it was absolutely spot on and we did a, a Kolb's learning style questionnaire recently and again that was really interesting for us and something we intend to roll out across our entire team here so we know how individuals here learn better and what their learning styles are so we can then adapt our our delivery to them and i'd agree with you i think both learning styles and an eq and personality types which you could argue is eq or not are massively important because when it comes down to interim work especially but consulting work the same yeah. you're landing somewhere and working with people who have different personality types different triggers they like information in a certain way you know what's their learning style they process they process everything in certain ways you know is it they like to see it do they like to hear it do they like to feel absolutely. it absolutely and actually, I think, like you say, at least having an awareness of that, I think, is a, is a massive thing yep. um, and can only help people. So no, th- thank you for that. And yeah, we'll, um, we'll put that in the show notes. I'll add the Myers-Briggs um, and hopefully people will, will go and do it and take one step further to, yeah. to improving their EQ. On the other side of the coin, so we've, that's what people can do to, to really separate themselves. I'm really interested in some of the candid feedback you get from clients to to help my listeners with, say, let's have, say they have an interview. You know, people might go into the interview and maybe the answer is they've just got bad EQ so they can't gauge the room, but <laughs> they, they might come out of it and think, yeah, okay, that, that went well or, okay, that went bad, I don't know. But you'll get a very honest feedback. If you've got a good relationship with a client, yeah. they'll call up and go, Minesh, this, if they say this guy was great, fantastic. But you, you probably get more candid negative feedback that you then have to temper for your candidate. Yeah. And I, I'd just be really interested if there's any any common themes. For you know, for instance, I don't know, maybe a maybe a client calls up and says, "Well, actually that candidate was really arrogant, mm. talked about nothing but themselves, not about the project team." And maybe you then have to temper that. Are there any common themes like that? Occasionally, and thankfully not the example that you raised because we never hear about sort of the, the arrogant um, part or the cocky part of yeah. it. But we often hear clients sometimes, not, not often actually, but sometimes we hear clients say, candidate didn't listen to the question. So they weren't able to give us the succinct response. 
they just told us everything. So GDPR, prime example, really popular topic at the moment. Yep. Everybody's doing it. And sometimes candidates will go into a meeting with a, a client and the client will talk about GDPR and the candidates will unload everything they know about GDPR. Now, our clients are going through it. They're running programs on it. So they, they have an understanding of it. What they want to know is, does the candidate understand what's required from the legislation point of view now? And how does it link to this particular role we're recruiting for? Not tell me everything there is to know about GDPR. And I think sometimes people get nervous in interviews and they want to showcase they've got a whole load of knowledge about a particular subject matter. But what they need to focus on is what has the client specifically asked me here? Yeah. And so listening to the question is probably the biggest thing. But also you spoke about EQ and reading the room, knowing when enough is enough and at what point you stop in your response yeah. and then hand back. The other final part is um, filling the room, filling the silent gaps. Don't be afraid to use silence to your advantage. Sometimes you need to stop your answer and say, go to you. Yeah, and that point, I mean, particularly around GDPR, actually, it got me thinking as well that that, like you said, sometimes comes down to confidence. You know, maybe I, I'm not so confident with my confident with my knowledge of GDPR, so I'm going to unload to yeah. show you I know, you know, regulation one through 500, mm. or I'm not a GDPR expert, so maybe there's only 10, I don't know. But let's say, especially on the interim side, you know, say you're doing a project on, it doesn't matter, say you're doing something around business change, and you, you're seeing GDPR is, is coming in the industry, you're seeing Brexit's the other one that everyone's recruiting for at the moment. If you wanted to, to move into that role, is it acceptable for someone actually to, you know, spend a bit of time self-studying, do, do yeah. their research, and then actually go into a, an interview with a client and say, well, look, I'll be honest with you, I'm I'm really good at delivery. I've done X, Y, Z. I've never delivered Brexit. I've never delivered GDPR. But I've spent, you know, the last few days reading it, I see the key headline challenges as ABC. Yeah. Is, is that an acceptable approach? Or do clients, you know, only want people who have delivered the same thing before? I think on an interim basis, naturally, clients will always want the latter. They're, because they're going to pay a day rate for an individual, they're going to want someone who's got, who's done it, tried and tested, got a t-shirt. GDPR being a prime example, nobody's ever delivered it. Same, same, same with the Brexit, I guess. Absolutely. So you've got individuals who have worked on the DPA, which is great. But the thing that's being highlighted with GDPR is that not many companies comply with the DPA as it currently stands. But there's only a small number of people who are in the marketplace available who could say, I've actually delivered the DPA regulation. So when when you then look at GDPR, because it's because the penalties are so severe in that space, every company's had to sit up and take notice of it. And when they're doing that, the market naturally dries up. So you can look at people who have worked on IFRS or Solvency 2, MIFID, if you want a regulatory background. But I remember giving some advice to a former client who was on the market, and I suggested to him that he go out and sign up to a course on GDPR, a week-long course. Now, the investment is close to £3,000, but I said to him, my advice is if you can go and sign up to that and actually really understand it and learn it, bearing in mind he understood regulatory projects and programs, could he then go out to the client, to our client base and say, I've got the knowledge and the theoretical understanding of what GDPR is, underpinned by 15 years of delivery experience, especially within some regulatory programs, but I absolutely understand the articles that sit underneath GDPR. Therefore, I can bring the two together. Now, maybe that won't be as attractive as a GDPR program manager. But I remember having conversations six months ago with clients who said to me at the time, if you send me a profile where someone says I'm a GDPR expert, I'll delete it because it doesn't exist. Because no one can be a GDPR expert six months ago. <laughs> Now we've probably got people who have set up programs, who have got it mid-flight, some who have got their 
companies into a good state where they're ready to be tested for the compliance, but no one can say they're hand on heart fully compliant as it stands today because really we don't know what the ICO is going to test against. We know what it looks like, but really May is going to, I guess, throw up the first set of results where we'll really get an understanding of exactly what do our clients need and want from their GDPR programs. And the, the point you made there about your advice with the, the investments, quite an interesting one, and, and I think a good, potentially a good piece of advice just for anyone in, in the interim world that doing that investment potentially shows clients that you are serious about that line of work, be it a Definitely. capability or be it a, a knowledge set. Yeah, and it shows us. You know, as Delta, we look at that and think, great, if you've actually gone out and spent a week of your time studying, you've invested you know, north of £1,000, maybe £2,000 to do a course as a business analyst to make yourself GDPR you know, ready, great. That gives us the confidence to say, you've put in your own due diligence, you've put in your own effort. Hopefully, we can take that to our client base to say, look, they're, you know, they're a self-starter. So could they apply that aptitude and that drive onto your program of work? I think I think it's a really good point. And so I want to bring us back to the to the recruiters to the recruiter side actually and and get your actually get your take on the wider industry. I know we've talked about some of my challenges and, and your views of them and and some of those might be caught here. I, I guess I, I wanted to start really by getting your view on is there anything in recruitment that through the time you built Delta that actually you believe to be true about being a recruiter that, that very few people in the industry agree with you on? I think we're um, on our, on our I guess some material that we sort of send out. We often talk about the fact that we're unashamedly old school in our approach, and I think the industry's moved quite a lot. There are people that use search algorithms and technology to its to the nth degree, which is great, and so do we here as well. But I think the one thing that the belief in the marketplace is that LinkedIn was going to absolutely disrupt everything. That technology was absolutely going to underpin it, and AI is going to come in and take over recruitment. I guess my personal belief you is... haven't got Apple or Google. That's that's the other big one. <laughs> they, they, they seem to be taking it over every industry. Why you would when you make millions off search pay-per-click, I don't know. But Yeah, but we, um, I, I personally believe that that old-school approach works. It still has a huge, it still adds a lot of value in the marketplace. And there's absolutely a place for it right now in the industry. And I think that's been the one big belief that I, I know Julian and I still hold, that perhaps the rest of the industry might not. And yeah. there are third parties out there external to recruitment who want to disrupt the industry. And I think in some ways it's needed because it will help all of us think smarter and better about how we do our jobs. But removing the human contact, I think, is always, I think that's never going to happen. I think that's got to be there, especially with the types of roles that we recruit. And again, if it was a transactional service that a client was looking to go and procure, then fine. But even using language like transactional and service and procure is something that we're desperately trying to avoid. We're trying to find the right talent and people for our clients. And even talent's probably a bit of a, cr- a cringy word. But try- trying to find the right people for our client is, is one of the most important things to us. And being a people partner to our clients is really vital. And again, it goes back to that old school belief that just get to know people, build yeah. a relationship. And I don't think... Uh, I don't think algorithms can necessarily do that, and I, I might be a bit old school in my approach. But <laughs> well, well that talks, belief. I think, really well to the you know, the point you made around EQ, doesn't it? Is you, you can't gauge EQ from a from a CV, and I, I think we go through, especially when you're younger, you do exams, you get degrees, yeah. and on paper you you have a CV. But I know plenty of people who have delivered a lot, but actually have very poor. EQ. And now sometimes in some environments, that's not a problem. You know, driving through brick walls is actually a, a useful skill. <laughs> but to your point, you, an algorithm can't tell me, you know, how good is Minesh with people. Uh, and so I fully, I fully agree with that. What, what about on the other side? So this and 
I'll, I'll couch this by saying it doesn't have to be a single one. Are there any beliefs or views in the recruitment industry, or let's say about recruiters, that you just fundamentally disagree with? Yeah, I think the perception. I met with a group of recruitment owners in December, and everyone was asked the magic question, what would you change about the industry? The overriding response was the perception of the industry. And um, not just recruitment, but other industries often get tarnished with the same brush. And the, the perception is everyone's out for a quick buck. Everyone's here to make money really quickly, not worry about relationships, just shove in a candidate and let them work somewhere and don't really care about what the candidate actually wants. That is unfortunately a real common misconception in the marketplace. And I think there probably are recruiters that do that. And I'm not here to name and shame anyone because there's thousands and thousands of companies in this space. But I am fundamentally of the belief that as our business, as Deltra, that is so far against what we try to do and want to do. So we're not bothered about having thousands of vacancies to work on. We'd much rather have a smaller number, but focus on the quality element. We'd much rather have a smaller pool of clients and work better with them and have repeat business. And I'd like to think one of the ways we've tried to dispel that myth is by focusing on repeat business and actually looking at how can we enhance our relationship with specific clients we work with and how can we actually take that relationship further and further and work with them. And the prime example comes back to the candidate we told you about. She's on her seventh project for us. So instead of just going online and finding a CV, we'd much rather go back to our existing network to say, who do we know that's good? And why don't we just use that person again? And she's worked for one client on two occasions for us, which is brilliant. So I look at that and think that is a common myth that we really need to sort of dispel very, very quickly in the industry because it it detracts, it, it sort of stops people from wanting to join the industry. It stops clients from wanting to work with recruiters. And in turn, it becomes a bit of a um, perpetual cycle where no one really benefits from it. I'd, I'd really agree. And like you say, the, the overarching theme I've got from you know what we've been talking about is it is investing in that relationship just as it is on a, a consultancy side. If you're working with a client, people are making very expensive and very important business decisions, hiring anyone. You know, it, it's a lot of time, a lot of cost. And a lot of risk. And like you say, if you if you don't have that relationship, you know, you're you're shooting in the dark. You know, it's sort of you buy certain things, you buy certain clothes, you buy certain food because you know the brand. You know, on Amazon today, you can go and pick up 10,000 different versions of the same thing, it seems. But you'll go for the one, you know, because like you say, you know what you're getting, you trust it. And and I think that's, yeah, I I think the perception point's key. And like you say, I guess that the challenge is that not everyone operates like that, but the best in any industry, the best do survive. Absolutely, yeah, I think we're firm believers of that, and I think we've been very fortunate to have that, have the ability to bring people in who also subscribe to that yeah. mantra. So we've got a core group of individuals here that we're really proud of who absolutely work to the same belief, same standards, and they want to focus on quality. They want to focus on relationships. You're probably sick and tired of hearing the word, hearing the word relationships, but we're so grateful for the fact that we've got wonderful people working, genuinely believe it, yeah. and to see that and to not have someone who wants to just make a quick buck is brilliant which is why when we're interviewing people to come and work here when we talk to clients when we sort of solicit feedback common thing we tend to hear is you listened to me you took my feedback on board you understood what i wanted and we often get that from people who we haven't tr- actually placed there are candidates that we've known for six or seven years who we've never found a role for through you know through timing who still refer people to us even now and we just look at them and think that is absolutely priceless to us but clearly there must be something right in the process to make them refer candidates to us. Yeah, definitely, as you say, people only refer people to firms they think are good and like. And ultimately, that was, you know, back in 2016, that's what brought me to to you you and your team was, you know, go and speak to these guys. And it was people that I respected in the industry saying that. 
So if someone's listening to this now, either they're working in recruitment or consultancy, and they want to start their own recruitment firm, let's say, or just more broadly professional services, because I I think there's commonalities across them. What advice would you give to that person? What advice would you give to someone looking to launch their own firm? Be true to what you do. Stay focused and on point. Don't get distracted by what if I did this, could it lead to X, Y, and Z? But also don't be close-minded to certain things as well. I think, um, and I know perhaps the last two contradict themselves, but we've had we've had to really focus on being a niche provider of project program and change people. And that is our key thing. And we have to turn business down sometimes when clients ask us for a technology specialist that you know might not be in our space. And it's really hard to turn that business down. But we know that by doing that, we're actually doing the client a favor because they're not going to get any you know, second, second rate service from us. We're only going to do what we are specialists in. And I think for anyone starting their own thing, if they are going to be niche and they're going to be a specialist, then be specialist, be niche and be proud of that because there's a lot of value in that right now. And was that quite challenging, especially in the early days? Um, early days, actually, not so much. Okay. No, ironically enough, because, and I guess the big thing was because there were only two of us in the early days, we knew we could manage our overheads. We owned the business, so therefore we didn't have to draw an earning if we didn't need to, if, if, if the business ever got to that point. It's only as you get bigger and there's salaries and there's rent and there's, you know, effectively 24 livelihoods that depend on the business being successful. You have to look at it and think, right, we've got to make sure our turnover is a certain point. Our gross profit needs to be a certain point. That's where it can be tempting to say, well, I'll have a bit of a stab at that. And that's where we, need, we as leaders need to be strong enough to say, let's focus on what we do. And by doing doing it and by doing the basics and getting things right the right opportunities will come up the right roles will make their way to us and we'll get more contractors more permanent placements out there by sticking to what we do and being specialist and you've got me thinking there actually because that's a again just something that quite often people can think the bigger you get the easier it is you know that the hardest point is when it's just two of you and you you know you've just gone out on your own and i think the really interesting point you you highlighted there is actually know that the pressure continues to build and those decision points become harder because of the 24 livelihoods the rent yeah. all of those things so it, it always it always gets harder but then we again we're fortunate that we've got some brilliant people here yeah so people who are able to help us with that journey people are able to help drive the business forward and we're, we're eternally grateful again to having really really strong-willed strong-minded individuals working with the business and working with us it, it does get harder but then you know we're not sat here with 2,000 staff and I don't know maybe it's easy when you're at that point because you've got so much so much going on on a daily basis but right now we're involved in every aspect of what's going on what our clients are doing what roles we're working where we're at what you know different yeah. life cycle of every every role that we're was there a, looking back you said you're now 24 were there any points where you you actually did have to change how you know how you and julia approached the business or how the business was structured as you grew yes do you remember sort of what that specific point was say numbers wise and what you had to do um it wasn't numbers wise but typically i think as, as you're getting to around 20 staff you have to almost have a bit of a, a step change so both julie and i now take time out to focus on working on the business and not in the business and it's yeah. quite a common phrase that our our sort of non-execs have, have taught us um but focusing on actually how do we fo- how do we build this as a business and think about it as owners of the business and shareholders, not just people who work in it on a day-to-day basis. And that that mindset has probably been the hardest thing because you really have to take a step back. And when you're looking at potentially hiring someone new, you've got to look at it as, one, can you manage that individual? Do you like them as, as a character? But then you step back and look at them as a shareholder or owner and think, are they right for the business? Are they going to, that investment, is that the right thing to do? Or should you invest that capital into two other resources elsewhere? And it's, 
it's making that decision that's really difficult. And probably for the first five years, we didn't have the opportunity to do that. We just focused on working with clients, placing contractors and building a good book of business. Now that we're growing more so, and once we've gone over 20, we then have to look at it and think, well, we've really got to think about the type of people we're bringing in, types of decisions that we make, and making really tough decisions that affect staff as well. You know, remuneration, policies, benefits, all those kinds of things. Some some for the better, some for the worse. But really, we've got to make sure that business is safeguarded. So it's not just 24 livelihoods. By the end of this year, could we have 30 people relying on that and actually thriving in that environment? And then next year, could we get to what our staff target is then? And, and hopefully by our 2020 plan, can we achieve our numbers and have a bigger business relying on each other? Yeah, well, I, I get the feeling we'll have to do a round two, maybe towards yeah. the end of the year or next year. You can you can tell me how things are progressing. <laughs> so, two just two last questions. I think we've we've covered a whole load today and some really good points, and I think some great advice for people to take away. The last two very specific, but very interested to get your feedback. Firstly, I like to read a lot of business books, um, like you say, sort of personal development books. I know a lot of the people who are listening to this do as well. What book or books do you find yourself recommending or giving to your your team here most often? I was recommended, I've not read it myself, but I was recommended to give the book, um, is it the, the One Minute Manager Meets the Monkey, I think. I think that's what it's called. Okay. I remember hearing it. It's a great title if it yeah. is. I'll look that up. It was about time management. Yeah. But I heard about it. Someone recommended it really highly. And we've got three managers in the business here that I was, thankfully just jumped onto Amazon and ordered it. And the following day, just made sure we gave it out because, again, it became highly recommended. It was a quick and easy book to read. So far, the feedback on it seems to be good and positive. There's a book that I've read which really resonates with me and it's called The Servant, but it really helped me understand about growing a business and the culture and actually the people that work in that and my role in that organisation as much as their role in the organisation and actually how do we all fulfil that together. Probably a book that I need to purchase and actually hand out around, around the team actually at some point. But for me, I found it really interesting and yeah. it was a really good one. And then um, lastly, I guess I, I try where possible to read the Harvard, Harvard Business Review. Just jump online or get a hard copy of it, which we have in the office here. There's always some good snippets in there about culture and change in particular. Um, a lot of it's US centric, but the methodology and the, the sort of the mantra behind it, I think, is Supplies universal. Everywhere. One top tip actually on the Harvard Business Review, mm. I don't know if you use Audible at all. I don't know. So firstly, I highly recommend Audible, but you yeah. can actually download, I guess there are episodes of almost the Harvard Business Review I'm impress on there. So especially if you commute, let's say, and you're, yeah. st- you know, you're stuck on the tube, you can't open it up, uh, open up the magazine. Great, great resource as well. I'll look it up. And the last question really, and this is a three in one, because I-, I like to get as much value okay. as I can. If you had three people in front of you, you're having three, you know, you're having three of your initial conversations with candidates. You, you've got one person who's literally just starting their career in consulting. Mm-hmm. You've got one who's four to five years in. So let's say senior consultant, maybe, maybe manager. And then one who, who's much more senior, maybe approaching partnership. What advice would you be giving to each of them? Uh, that's a really good question. I guess for the one breaking in, um, work hard and actually persevere, earn your stripes and don't just assume that everything's going to be sort of handed to you. I think that that sort of business development side, especially within consultancy, my understanding of it is you've really got to go out and fight for it and prove that you can BD so you can make the step up and move up to senior manager and, and director. Someone sort of four to five years in um, as an interim, as an example, my advice would be try to take the opportunities and the projects that are really going to help you do the next step change if you want to actually progress at the same time as your permanent peer group are. So challenge yourself, step outside of your comfort zone. Don't always focus on the actual monetary value, the day rate. Sometimes taking a slight hit 
might give you the exposure and the opportunity to take a, a bigger and a better role in the long term. Someone who's reaching partnership point, we see this quite often where people come to us, they're at that level and they want to exit the consultancy world and they want to have their own portfolio of clients, almost uh, effectively non-exec type position, have three to four clients where it's not five days a week, but it's going out and doing um, advisory work. And main bit of advice I would say is contact us. <laughs> we're, we're keen to speak to you. It's, it's something that we're seeing a lot and it's quite common practice. Clients absolutely love it. And if you've got the right delivery partner, i.e. a Delta who can actually go out and be your extension, your business development arm, let's work together on it because there's a lot of value in, in moving into that portfolio realm right now. And if people do want to, to get in touch and they might have listened to this, want to find out more about yourself or, yeah. or Deltra, where would you point them to? Please visit the website, so deltragroup.com, LinkedIn profile, so Minesh Jobin Putra. I think there's only two of us out there, so <laughs> it won't be hard to find. And feel free to give us a call. The number to reach us on is 0207-375-9501. Brilliant, Minesh. Well, I've really enjoyed today. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having And me on. all the best for the week. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Climb in Consulting podcast. If you did, I would be very grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast platform of choice, whichever one you may be using. And please also share this with anyone that you think could benefit from hearing today's interview. If you want to get in touch or give me any feedback about the podcast, please feel free to drop me an email. It's nick at climbinconsulting.com and I look forward to hearing from you.